Welcome back to Basecamp as we're continuing the special study on suffering in the lives of Christians. Now, so far this week, in the last two episodes, we've continued talking about how suffering is a battle for faith. And we've noted very practical things that we need to do when we find ourselves suffering, as well as what we can do to help others who are fighting for faith in times of their suffering as as we minister to them through encouragement, sharing the word, prayer, and hospitality. Now, if you missed any of those episodes, I'd highly encourage you going back and listening to them before we dive into today's episodes. As today, we're diving a bit deeper on how how we are able to share the burdens of those walking through suffering and when to step in and when not to step in, when we ought to step in, when we're commanded to, and when we may step in if we so desire. And, and one thing that is abundantly clear as we strive to share the burdens of the fellow members of our church and love them well as they walk through suffering, as well as people in our family, is that it will cost us. Where it's going to cost us emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and financially. And that's the point. We, we are to practically serve and love our brothers and sisters as they are walking through suffering just as we desire for them to do the same for us when we are walking through suffering. See, it's in this way that we share one another's burdens, like the old song goes that I learned when I was a kid. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. Thus, in the Christian life, there are times when we are strong and we need to allow others to lean on us. And there are times when we are weak and we need to admit our weaknesses so that we can allow others the joy of letting us lean on them as they serve us. Thus, for those of us who are serving others as they walk through suffering, there is a special work of the Spirit in our lives as we minister. There, there is a joy in knowing that we are ministering to our brothers and sisters and that God is using us in their lives in this season to encourage them. And thinking about that, one of the ways that uh, we can be hospitable, as we talked about in the last episode, is by, is by helping out those who are suffering with the practical needs of life, such as food and clothing and shelter and friendship. Now, Why would that be important? Well, for one, we realize that our spiritual life is not disconnected from the physical, right? Stress, worry, exhaustion, not eating well, and sickness all make it harder to think clearly and to trust God in faith. I know that's true of myself in just handling the logistics of everyday life, right? When I I find myself caught in worry or increased stress with pending deadlines or With even just a few days of decreased sleep, I'm prone to respond poorly, and even my time with the Lord can suffer. But if part of the way that we, as those who are in Christ, can help others fight for faith is through helping out with practical needs, the question that it raises, uh, I mean, it raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? I mean, for for example, if we do a quick assessment of our own friends and family, the needs that are there are not just a few. There's, there's probably lots of them. And then outside of our own family and friends, right? I mean, just turn on the local news or open up the paper and the headlines present themselves. They can be overwhelming, right? There's disease and poverty and famine, natural disasters, government persecution. I mean, where do we begin helping? 
right? We can look at suffering all around us and throw up our hands and say, it's just too much. There's nothing I can do. Or we could try to tackle every possible need and spread ourselves so thin that we don't really provide any real help and, and we burn out before we even really get started. So what we need then is a biblical perspective on the relief of physical suffering. A biblical perspective on how to bring relief into physical suffering. And to that, we're going to look at three principles, three things. Love as the posture of a Christian. Then we'll look at the idea of moral proximity and then the priority of need. Now, this episode is not meant to be an exhaustive treatment of the issue. Rather, I hope to introduce these principles that are helpful for thinking through these issues and to show us really how we do that. Right? As we look at Scripture, I hope to help put our concern for the poor and the needy and, and also the desire to help in their suffering, which is biblical, good response. I hope to, do, to, to help put all that on a more solid footing, to know how we ought to actually engage as Christians and begin some of those conversations. Now, as a warning, this episode will be fairly theoretical, and we won't be able to move completely from the theoretical to the practical in just one episode. So in future episodes, however, we will seek to apply Scripture to real-life scenarios to, to really flesh out what it can look like. So with all that in mind, let's dive in. Now, as we're getting started, let's begin by examining those three principles that I mentioned so we can develop a biblical perspective on the relief of physical suffering. So the first one that I wanted to discuss uh, is our posture as Christians is to be one of love. Our posture is to be one of love. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is well known to many of us, right? In Luke 10, Jesus tells a story of a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by a band of robbers. In this encounter of him being attacked, he is stripped of his clothes, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. And as he lay there, three men passed by. The first two were religious leaders in Israel who turned their head and passed by on the other side of the road. But the third was a Samaritan, a group that the Jews hated, who ended up being the only one to stop and help him. And the basic point of the parable is Luke 10, 37. Jesus said to them, you go and do likewise. So the reason Jesus told the parable in the first place was in response to a lawyer who had asked how to inherit eternal life. When Jesus affirmed his answer to love God and neighbor, the lawyer said, well, then who is my neighbor? Basically, he's trying to water down the definition of neighbor so that he would be able to fulfill it in his own effort and therefore justify himself before God. But Jesus' parable frustrates the lawyer's efforts. He is, and, and we the readers, we are too, faced with the reality that the very thing that he's required to do to inherit eternal life, he has utterly failed to do. In fact, he can't do it on his own. Why? Well, because Jesus is teaching that we are all called to love our neighbors, not just those who are easy to love, but anyone and everyone as we have opportunity. Now, friends, we sometimes hear this and make it easy to assume that loving this way is not what Jesus really meant. There's got to be some catch, some condition that will lighten the load. And so we skip on to other texts without feeling what Jesus is saying here. But we need to let this sink in a bit. Jesus is saying this is how we should, how we ought to love. 
And as followers of Jesus, this should be our disposition as we are faced with needs in our own family, with our friends, in our church, and as we walk down the streets in our neighborhood or hear of suffering overseas. Why, you might ask? Well, because like the lawyer in the story, we too have realized that we cannot justify ourselves before God. We were once that man on the road, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and we were left for dead until Jesus came down the road. Though we were his enemies, he saved us at the cost of his life. Knowing God's love for us should move us, therefore, to love lavishly and creatively and radically without asking legalistically, well, then who is my neighbor? Are they worthy of my love? Now, instead, such love is our posture as those who have come to know the love of God in Christ. And this posture of loving well works itself out in a variety of ways. If we were to go all the way back to Leviticus, we see this worked out in Leviticus 19, 9 to 18, so chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. It's a really good love your neighbor text. This is what we, we read. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In, in all of this, in Leviticus, we see that we show love to our neighbors with our possessions. We see that in verses 9 and 10. With our words, verses 11 and 12. With our actions, verse 13 and 14. In our judgments, verses 15 and 16. In our attitude, verses 17 and 18. But we might wonder, looking at that list, well, we only have 24 hours in a day and all the needs around us seem countless. So how in the world are we to think carefully and biblically about what this looks like? Thus, in order to think carefully about the relief of physical suffering in this world, it's, it's helpful to understand this next principle. So our first principle, we are to love and love extravagantly and generously, giving of ourselves because we've been loved by Christ. So then our, our next principle then, as we're trying to relieve physical suffering, is the principle of moral proximity. Now, this isn't cut in stone, but, but this, is a, this is a helpful way to, to gauge how do we actually engage in various physical sufferings around us. And I, I found this idea of moral proximity uh, helpful, but also it's, it's most naturally what we also do and are called to do think, as I'm reading God's word and seeing this in there, as, 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 good, as good directional of, of, of a principle of how we live this out practically, right? So, so the idea of moral proximity 
can be defined like this. So moral proximity is the closer the moral proximity of the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. Now, moral proximity does not refer to geography, though that can be part of the equation. But moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity or kinship, space, or time. Right? And the pattern for this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And it generally worked itself out like concentric circles, with the smallest circle being your family, then your tribe, then your fellow Israelites, and then other nations. Right? So, for example, a stranger could come up to me in St. Vital Mall and tell me he lost his job and needed money. Now, giving him money may be a good thing to do, but, but if we only have a finite number of resources and we're having this need come before us, and then our adult children also, one of our, one of our adult children lost their job and they need that exact same amount of money because they also lost their job and we only have a finite amount of money, then what do we do? We're not gonna go in debt to give people money. So what do we, what do, we do? We have a finite amount of money. Well, what the moral proximity principle kind of helps us understand is that we have more of an obligation to help our children in their time of suffering this loss of job than this random stranger that we, we do not know. Now, if you're a parent, moral proximity might kind of sound like common sense to you. Right? As an extreme example, imagine that you checked your kids into Trails Kids during the sermon, and during the sermon, the fire alarm goes off. Now, if that happened, I have no doubt that you as a parent would want every single one of our children to get out safely. But who would you be sure to grab first? <laughs> You'd grab your own kid, right? Not because you don't care about the others, but because you have a unique responsibility, a moral proximity to that child. That is your child. It's the same reason why in airplanes, they always have the announcement to put on your own mask before helping anybody else, right? Because your gut reaction might be to save someone else and die in the process. Right? So, so we, need to be, we need to be careful here, though, in talking about things like moral proximity, because moral proximity does not mean that we should only care for our own family and friends. No, that, that's not what it means. But, and, and this is a key aspect of the principle, it means that we ought to do, that what we ought to do in one situation is what we may do in another one. What we ought to do in one situation is what we may do in another. See, moral proximity makes obedience possible by reminding us that, that before Paul says, let us do good to everyone, he said, so then as we have opportunity. We see that in Galatians 6.10. And we can see the difference between what we ought to do and what we may do by comparing 1 John 3.17 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Right? In 1 John 3.17, the apostle is addressing the way that Christians should care for other believers in their local church. He writes, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, that's, that's strong language. Right? He, he's not saying, you may do that if you would like to. No, 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 no. John is saying, you must do this if you claim to be a Christian. Now, on the other hand, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth in order to raise money for the church in Jerusalem, some 800 miles away. Now, does he write the same way that John instructs to care for the needy in your own local church? No. Instead, Paul writes to the Corinthians, verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 8, and chapter 9, verse 7, he says, 
I say this not as a command, but, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All right, so 1 John 3, 17, you, you ought to do this. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, here's an opportunity to do this. You, you may do this, but, but you're not under compulsion to do this. Now, again, moral proximity is not an excuse to ignore your neighbor in need or someone halfway around the world suffering after tragedy. I mean, remember Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Rather, it acknowledges that we have limitations. Now, that's what it helps us realize. It just acknowledges we all have limitations. We have physical bodies that get tired and sick. We have other good God-given responsibilities like loving our spouse and raising our kids and working our jobs and being a faithful church member and being sure to rest, among other things. We only have limited resources and limited time in a day. And so what do we do with it? How do we, how do we obey these commands in a very practical way? And that's the, that's the question, right? As one writer, Kevin DeYoung, put it, if we need 50 hours in every day to be obedient, we're saying more than the Bible says. And, and the more that I, I think about this as one of our pastors, the more I practically understand it. Right? Because I get the joy of understanding more broadly various needs in our church and and I know a lot of different scenarios that people are going through and things that they need, but because I'm finite, I personally cannot meet every need. I, I can't visit with every person who has questions about things. I, I cannot be involved in meeting every practical need, but, but I also know God isn't asking me to do that, and that's why we have a local church. That's why you're members of our church, that we can all use our gifts together to serve and meet needs of those closest to us. And so, a bit more practically, this probably looks more like meeting the needs of your family, firstly, and then helping meet various needs in your Bible study or discipleship group or small group as people are walking through times of suffering or crisis. Then more broadly to the members of our church, those, those who we have committed to loving, serving, and using our gifts to equip in practical ways. And then extends by looking outside of our church to other needs, both here in Winnipeg and across our nation and internationally. Right, so, so that is what, if we would sketch out what Scripture generally emphasizes for our moral proximity, it might, it might look like two big groups, right? That's an easy way to think about it. Two buckets, two big groups. The first group is the group that we ought to help, which would be character, characterized by these categories of our immediate family and those fellow members of our church. So we ought to help them to demonstrate our faith, as we, we read in 1 John 3. Then we may help other Christians, and all people and need. So we ought to help our immediate family and, and our fellow members of our church. Then we may help other Christians and all people in need. So ought to and may. Right, so, so we read in 1 Timothy 5, 8, we read this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So that's where we, we ought to provide for our own family. <laughs> that, that's where that ought to family comes first. We, we ought to provide for our family. Or, or, or else not, we have denied the faith and is wor we're worse than an unbeliever, right? And then if we see in 1 John 3, 11, 16, and 17 that it's our local church that we also ought to provide for. As John writes, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? 
Also, we see Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, of one another. And then we come to the category, the, the groups that we, we may help as we are able. So who are those? Well, firstly, other Christians, we, we read in 2 Corinthians 8.8 8 and uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 7, right? That, those words of Paul, I, I mentioned a moment ago, but I'll say them again. Paul wrote, I, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also that your love also is genuine. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So in that we see that the church is encouraged to excel in the grace of of giving. This is one of the reasons as well in our Christmas missions offering that we're intentionally striving to do that. <laughs> this is this is what we are striving to also be. So, so firstly, we, we give to meet the needs of our church, right? We give financially offerings into our church to help meet the needs of, of our faith family. But then also we have these other opportunities of, of giving so that the good news of the gospel might go forth through these Christians living out the gospel in these various places with these various different churches and ministries we're supporting. So, so that's what we may do, but it's not an ought to do. And then we see our final category as we may help all people in need, which we see expressed in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 27 in the Good Samaritan story that we already discussed. So again, if you're wondering who you ought to intentionally serve as they are walking through times of suffering, the principle of moral proximity can be a very helpful tool to know if we ought to step in and help in a situation or not. But I also caution you that this is not a hard and fast rule. As Christians, we also need to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading and be careful that we don't use this principle to close our, our hearts or our ears or to justify our own selfishness. Rather, it can be useful to help us understand our obligations and why helping relieve suffering may be of primary importance in some cases and secondary in others. Who we need to, to go out of our way and providing for with the limited resources that we have. Because as we said, we can't meet every possible need in the world, but we can meet some needs. And so which ones do we meet? Thus, all these opportunities call for wisdom. Thankfully, God gives us wisdom as we pray and ask him to lead us. So, so be sure to spend time in praying as you hear about various needs and sufferings that people are walking through and, as led, engage. So, so we talked about the principle of love that should, that should guide everything that we're doing and thinking through all of these things. Love which we've been loved by Christ, we are therefore now to extend to others in practical ways as they are suffering. And then we talked about the principle of moral proximity, which, which helps us understand how how we ought to live, uh, how, how we ought to engage in things that we may engage in. But then that brings us to our third principle, the priority of need. Now, all suffering is terrible, but not all categories of suffering are equal. They, they, don't, they don't bear the same weight. Thus, as Christians, we need to have clarity on the relationship between suffering in this life from things like poverty and racism and crime and disease and lack of clean water, among other things, and the sufferings in the life to come. We need to have in mind the realities of heaven and hell. All right, so, so, so for example, if, if there's an organization that is based on relieving sufferings in this life from people not having access to clean drinking water, 
That is a real need and a real suffering. But it's not as important as that person hearing the gospel and knowing about the living water that Christ has come to give them. Thus, that organization that is working at building wells might be great, but another organization might also be working at building wells through church planting initiatives with an eye towards working in that, that area through local churches as they build wells and then share the gospel in that city, right? So, so there's a difference of those, right? One of, them, one of them is just practical needs. Another one is practical and, uh, and eternal needs that, that they have an eye towards. Right? So, so one of those organizations would be higher on the list of potential places to donate to than the other because one is aimed only at meeting physical needs while the other is meeting the need of clean drinking water but is also connected to a local church who's proclaiming the gospel which can save them from facing judgment for their sins see so we need to remember at our core our greatest need and the greatest need of everyone in the world is the gospel that's true of all people everywhere at all times and as christians we, we can feed people and ensure they have water and access to medical care. But but they will simply be well looked after here in this life and still spend eternity suffering under the wrath of God for their sins. Thus, were they any better off because of, of them having clean drinking water but no proclamation of the gospel? No. See, as Christians, what is of first importance to us is the gospel, gospel proclamation, for that meets the core need of all people. That is exactly along the lines of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15.3, when he writes, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What what did he receive? What was of first importance? He explains in verses 3b and 4 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. See, for Paul, the message of the cross is of first importance. It's what takes preeminence, first priority, and it ought to for us as well. Now you might be wondering, what does that mean that Christians don't care for the physical suffering that people are walking through? Absolutely not. We we do care. The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 makes it clear that a heart that cares for the poor is a heart that is transformed by the gospel. So we must desire to care. But the story of the Good Samaritan is also a story that's told by Jesus in response to the call to love our neighbor. What does it mean to love our neighbors? And primarily it means to care about their happiness in God just as much as we care about our own happiness in God. Thus, the story of the Good Samaritan is one that calls us to love our neighbor in practical ways. And it also simultaneously compels us to evangelize that neighbor, to share the hope that we have in Christ so those around us that we do good works towards might know the hope of the gospel as we care for them and meet them in their time of suffering and provide for them. It's a both and See, the nature of love is, is to do what is good for another. Right? So if my, friend, if my friend is a non-Christian, then the most loving thing I can do is share the gospel with them, without which they will spend eternity future suffering in hell. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many loving things I can and should do to alleviate their physical suffering if 
I do nothing to alleviate their eternal suffering. Thus, one of the most essential ways we fulfill the great commandment, right, loving our neighbors, is by fulfilling the great commission, sharing the gospel with them. See, evangelism then is primary. It is of first importance. But of second importance is that we who are justified by faith alone have a faith that leads us to love others and help alleviate suffering in the world as we are able. John Piper summed this up well when he wrote, suffering in this world is terrible and limited, but suffering in the next world is terrible and eternal. And love sees it that way. Love does not shut its eyes to this world or that world. Love reckons with the reality of suffering here and the worse reality of suffering there. Don't choose between rescuing people from suffering in this world and rescuing people from suffering in the next. We care about suffering now and especially eternal suffering. And that's a great way to, that's a great way to look at it. As, as followers of Christ, we should care about all suffering, which we do. We, we care about mothers who can't feed their children because of famines. But we care about those walking through natural disasters and sickness and death from diseases and illnesses that are easily treatable. We mourn for those trapped in human trafficking. I mean, the list goes on and on. We care about these sufferings and we strive to help where able. But in our minds as a first importance is also the eternal suffering that we have all earned because of our rebellion against God. And so, so we care about suffering here and now, and we also care about their souls enough to share the gospel with them. We care about their future eternal suffering apart from Christ. And friends, in all this discussion, let's not assume that only social action produces social change and that the gospel doesn't do that. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it can be argued that the gospel, rightly proclaimed, has been used by God to bring about the greatest social change the world has ever known. Max Stiles tells of an example of this that he saw firsthand. This is what he wrote. He said, when our missionary friend, Mike McComb, tried to introduce protein into diets of the largely illiterate Guatemalan farmers, it was a masterful combination of expertise, training, and strategy. He started his work toward the end of the murderous civil war. We lived there with him off and on over the course of six years, working in the malnourishment clinic in the village. During that time, Mike also faithfully shared the gospel. But Mike noticed it was the gospel that allowed protein to get to the people. See, when the gospel was understood and accepted in villages, men stopped getting drunk and beating their wives. And as they attended church, they started to attend to their crops and to their children's education. Thomas, the local mayor, told me that it was only when the gospel came to the Ihil lands, this is tribe, that real change happened. Mike says that the preaching of the gospel did more to eliminate hunger than fish farms or crop rotation ever did. We must never forget that the gospel brings more long-term social good than any aid program ever developed. 
Now, at this point in the episode, you might wonder, well, what in the world does all of this have to do with suffering well? What does this have to do with fighting for faith? Well, two things. For those of you who are suffering, it reminds us again of the importance of having an eternal perspective in the midst of our suffering. Knowing that our greatest need has been taken care of in Christ helps us to endure the worst of suffering in this life as we pray and work for it to end. As Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And it also shows us that we should accept the help that people offer us. Friends, if you're suffering, it's it's okay to admit that. It's okay, and we may have to we may have to let people into our lives to know what we need. We may not know what we need. We we may need people around us to help us know even what we need. And it also reminds us that even as we need help, we can still be of help by continuing to love others. And then for those of you who are are helping those who are walking through times of suffering, it reminds us that as we care for others, love calls us to care for the physical suffering of others, but also we must not forget that the eternal is more important than the temporal. So as we think of what it means to love our neighbor, we remember the most loving thing that we can do is tell them the gospel, remind them of the gospel, preach to them the gospel. In writing about this, the late J.I. Packer wrote, the nature of love is to do good and to relieve need. If then our neighbor is unconverted, we are to show love by seeking to share with him the good news without which he will perish. See, if the person suffering is not a Christian, we pray that God would give them saving faith through the gospel as we also help alleviate any suffering that we are able. And if the person is a Christian, we pray that God would preserve their faith and persevere their faith through remembering and being reminded of and taught and encouraged in the gospel. Right, so as we strive to meet physical needs around us to relieve physical suffering, we remember that our posture as Christians is always to be one of love. As we serve those we ought to serve and those we may serve, we remember that the matters of first importance are to proclaim the gospel to suffering hearts. For that's the essence of loving and serving our neighbors, caring about their own happiness in God as much as we care about our own, which means that we will be looking for ways to share the gospel as we try to alleviate suffering in the lives of those around us. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Base Camp. So we're trying to learn how to suffer well as Christians and to come alongside of those who are suffering with the hope of the gospel. We want to thank again the wonderful folks of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for allowing us to use a lot of their materials on suffering as we're walking through as we're walking through this series, trying to learn what it means as a church to suffer well and to suffer with others well as we share their burdens. Thanks for tuning into the episode.